You know, a few years ago I was driving home, and I won't forget this day, I was driving home and I, I arrived home and my, my brother was on a phone call. He was on a phone call to the electricity company. And it was a stinking hot summer day. It was so hot. And it, as it turned out, our power had been shut off. It had to do with the fact that the previous owners hadn't cancelled the electricity. So when they switched, so when we moved in and we switched providers, the other electricity company wasn't being paid. So they, they shut off the electricity and they informed my brother that they're not going to restore service until the next day because they had no technician who they could send out. So for this summer's day, it was so hot. And I realized that day that without electricity, there's no reason to be at home, really, when you think about it. We couldn't see because it was dark. We couldn't watch TV because there was no power. We couldn't read a book because you can't turn on the light. You can use your phone and your laptops for a period of time, but eventually they need to be charged. We couldn't use the aircon, and it was so hot. Without electricity, we were back in the dark ages. And I believe that that day God taught me a lesson. He taught me that the Holy Spirit is the electricity of the Christian life. Without the electricity turned on, without the Holy Spirit turned on, we as Christians are useless. We can't do much. And our theme verse for this series on the fruit of the Spirit comes from Galatians where Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what he's saying is that when the Holy Spirit is turned on in your life, the electricity is turned on. When the electricity is turned on in your house, you can use the appliances, you can use your lights, you can use your fridge, you can use your television, you can charge your phone. When the Holy Spirit is not turned on in your Christian life, you can't love you can't have joy. You can't have peace. And interestingly, Paul could have written this verse like this. The fruit of sin is hatred, bitterness, war, impatience, envy, selfishness, harshness, and adultery. He could have said that as well. And it does amaze me as we're talking today about goodness, the sixth one on the list, cultivating goodness, is that there are a lot of people out there in the world, followers of Jesus, who despite the fact that they say that they have the Holy Spirit, the electricity turned on, they still live as if they're in darkness. And they still live practicing the fruit of sin. But today, we have this beautiful beautiful verse, and I feel privileged to be able to speak on this verse because it comes from Ephesians, a letter written to a multi-ethnic church. And Paul says this, you know how sometimes when you're given a passage to do Bible study or to preach on, it's a really difficult passage to do and you're like, why did I get this one on the list and why didn't Pastor Matthew put himself against this one? But when I saw this one, I'm like, this is a really good passage to preach on. And Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of, from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I just love this beautiful verse. For it is by grace you have been saved. The Greek word charis not only implies 
unmerited favor, God's incredible favor upon his people, but it also implies an undeserved favor, a favor which a person has not done anything whatsoever to earn. You know, sometimes when you go to work, you get paid, you've earned your wages. And sometimes your boss or your employer might say once a year, if you do a very good job, you'll be entitled to a bonus. That bonus is dependent on your good works and your good, your good works as an employee. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that we have done absolutely nothing to earn this incredible favor from God. God's incredible goodness has been poured out to us and we have done nothing to deserve it. You and I were not alive when Christ died for our sins. It's just been his grace and his goodness has just been poured out onto us. And he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance to, for us to do. We are his handiwork. The Greek word there for handiwork is poem. It's where we get our concept of poem from, poetry in motion, that we are God's poem. We are his beautiful poem which he's writing to the world. For the world to, to see the beautiful language of God's poem, that is who he has created us to be. We are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus. He's not there speaking of our biological birth, but he's speaking of our spiritual birth. That when we, when we become a follower of Jesus, we become a new creation. And now as new creations, we are God's poem to the world, doing the good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. I love that imagery that we are doing work, good works in the world that God has prepared in advance for us to do. God knew in advance that one day there would be a church here called Parkside. He knew in advance that, that you would give so generously and that there would be people so supportive. In advance, he knew that those good things would happen. And incredibly, it shouldn't surprise us because when we do good works in the world, we are partnering with God who is also doing good works in the world. What did it say at the very beginning when God created the world? It said his creation was what? It was very good. We're joining God. When God formed the nation of Israel and sent Moses, he was, he was sending people to do good works in the world. When Jesus came into the world and was healing people and teaching, he was doing good works, the work of his Father, and he sent his church out to do that. And the most important way that he sent his church out was to proclaim the gospel message, the central good news. God has prepared us in advance, and when you and I do good to each other, we are following in God's footsteps of doing good in the world. But I want to mention a couple of things around this idea of cultivating goodness. It's so critical that the first thing we understand is that there is only one worthy of being called good. There is only one who deserves that title of being good. I'm a big believer that when you start to talk about any themes, you need to first begin by defining your terms. And that's, I think, a practical lesson in, in our world today, that when I say one thing, say if I take the word love, that means very different things to very different people. right? So we need to look at this word good and understand that the word good is dependent on the context you use it at. Now, um, I, I played a bit of tennis 
growing up. And as it happened in year 11, my school, with myself and a few other people playing doubles, we won the championship for the district, right? But if I were to say that I was a good tennis player, right, that would be very different to saying Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal are good tennis players, right? If, if, if your kids play football or they play soccer and, and, and you know, they, they win the title in the under-11s division, you know, that's very different to saying that they're good players in the same way that the French side who won the World Cup last year is a good soccer team. You know? So it's very different when we say that human beings are good and that we do good things in the world. It's very different when you say God is good because God's goodness and our goodness are light years apart. Every good thing in the world comes through the goodness of God. You know, I might paint, a, a painter might paint a beautiful painting that you say, man, that's a good-looking painting. But compared to the, the good painting that God has, has, has painted over the heavens, it's light years apart. And when we speak about goodness, we must understand that God is the only one who is truly good. The Bible says God is light. In him there is no darkness whatsoever. There is no darkness. In fact, it says the darkness flees from his presence. That is how good he is. That is how holy he is. You know, people often ask the question, you know, if God is so good, why did he create evil? And the biblical answer for that is he didn't. The biblical answer for that is that God is so good that anything which which falls from his goodness, becomes evil. That is how good he is. That is how perfect he is. You know, it's like, it's like concepts like hot and cold. When, when, when physicists speak about heat and cold, they don't speak about literal things. They speak about the fact that cold is just the absence of heat. You know, darkness is the absence of light. Evil is the absence of God's goodness. That is how perfect God is. In him there is no darkness whatsoever. You know how sometimes you see in the Eastern traditions or the Buddhist traditions how they, they, they give you the symbol of the yin-yang, which is you know, half white, half black. It's always interesting that the black has to be the bad, right? <laughs> no wonder there's so much racism in the world, you know? <laughs> but, you know, you know, it has in that symbol, even in the white space, it has a small black dot. And even in the black space, it has the small white dot. And the message that it's communicating is that even in people who are good, there is darkness. And even in people who there is bad, there is some good. And, and I think that's true, genuinely, when you look at the world. But when it comes to God, Jesus is the perfect circle, the perfect, complete, white circle. In him, there is no darkness whatsoever. In him, there was no sin whatsoever. Jesus, in both his nature and his actions, was good, completely good. That's why he says, I am the good shepherd. He doesn't just say, I am the shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What's he saying? He's saying that I in nature am good. In my actions, I am good. And when we enter a relationship with God, yeah, we don't become perfect, but we become more and more like Christ in nature and in action. So in our hearts, we become better people. And in our actions, we become better people. And that's not done through our own good works. It is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why our salvation is not based on works. Because the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work through us. But here we must stop to make an important point. right? 
for a long time, particularly in Jesus' days, people were debating, what is the best thing you can do? What is the highest virtue you can do? I'm about to invent a word here. Right? Do we have any English teachers in the world? In, 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 we have English teachers in the world, but do we have any English teachers here at Parkside in the room? Well, you're about to go ping, because I'm about to do something which is going to mess with the chemicals in your brain. I'm about to invent a word. I, I, I understand that we used to have an English teacher here called uh, Mrs. Marsh, right? but she's not here today. But right, if you, if you get like, annoyed when people grammatically do things which are incorrect, you're about to get annoyed here. I'm going to invent a word. The word is goodest. Right? Okay. If you're wondering what is the goodest thing you can do in the world, what is the goodest thing you can do in the world, right? Jesus answers that question, right? So it comes in a famous story where a certain ruler approaches Jesus. Now, I love the fact that it calls him a certain ruler, you know? It's like it doesn't want to give his name, you know? He's a certain ruler, you know? A certain leader of multi-ethnic church down in Sydney Southwest, you know? A certain president. You know, who wants to build a certain wall, you know? You know? A certain red-headed prime minister we used to have, you know? It's just a certain person, you know? A certain smelly person at church or at work who nobody wants to sit next to. You know, it's just a certain person. That's how it calls this guy, right? So he comes to Jesus and he wants to have a dialogue and he says, good teacher, and Jesus, you know, says, why do you call me good? And then he says, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You know the story, and Jesus says, go and keep all the commandments. And he says, well, I've been doing this since I was a certain boy, and then Jesus says, you know, one thing you still lack, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Right Now, we stop the passage there. We think that what, God, what Jesus is asking him to do is that is to sell everything and give it to the poor and that's why he goes away upset. But Jesus says something important to him after that. He says, then come, follow me. Then come, follow me. So in Jesus' mind, the goodest thing that this man can do, yes, he may follow the law and that's a good thing. Yes, he may even sell all his possessions, but the goodest thing he can actually do is to enter into a relationship with Jesus, right? It is out of the relationship with Jesus that all other goodness follows in the life of a Christian. And I truly believe that when people out there in the world say that I'm a good person, I don't do this, I don't do that, you know, I tend to believe them, you know. I don't think the person driving next to me on the road is a serial killer. You know, I don't think that the person serving me at McDonald's is doing all sorts of terrible things to children. I genuinely believe that they believe that they're good people, and I think for the most part they probably are, right? But what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you may do a lot of good things right, but the goodest thing you can do is to follow me. That is the goodest thing. Come, follow me. We do good in the world out of a response to God's goodness to us. And the fact that God is good to us by giving us our daily breath, by giving us the very air we breathe, he calls us to do good now in the world. But I want to, in my second point, comment on the tension that we sometimes as Christians feel. You know, we know that God calls us to do good in the world. The primary commandment that God gave us was to love God and to love our neighbour. And in Jesus' mind, yes, our neighbour is everybody, but it starts with the people closest to us. It starts with being a good and faithful partner. It starts with being a good and faithful parent. It starts with being a good and faithful child. It starts between being a good and faithful employee or employer. It starts with being a good and faithful friend to people. That is what it means in Jesus' eyes to love our neighbour. Right? And for all of us, we are called to do that. Right? Jesus 
himself, believe it or not, submitted himself to that very commandment. He submitted himself to doing good to his neighbour. You know, Jesus had a family. You think Mary and Joseph never fought in, in Jesus' presence? What household doesn't have people fighting? You think Jesus' siblings didn't fight amongst themselves and try to come to Jesus for, to play mediator? In Jesus' mind, doing goodness to love our neighbour is what God has called us to do. And he himself didn't pull himself away from that. So he understands when, when, when there are times when it's hard to be a good person. He understands that because he himself was put into this world. But Jesus also understands that not only does God call us to do good things, he calls us to do good things to the world. This is why the Bible has this command. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And Jesus understands that it's not just about doing good in the world and doing good in your neighbour. It's also about being good in your heart. right? That's why Jesus prioritized commandments but changed them in a way so that the focus was on about was about your heart and your motivations because we understand that no matter how much we try to do good sometimes we can have good motivations but still take the wrong course of action sometimes we can have bad motivations and take a good course of action sometimes it's hard to know what to do what what to do which is right and wrong Right? Sometimes you know, we, we, we should need to give more grace sometimes to our politicians who have to make really, really hard decisions and sometimes they don't know what the right decision is to make sometimes. And Jesus understands that doing good is also about the condition of your heart. It's about the condition of your heart before anything else. But we live with that tension that, that yes, God calls us to do good in, this, in the world. But we live with this other tension that just because we do good in the world doesn't mean that our good deeds are the basis of our right standing before God. In all other religious systems, a person's good deeds, primarily speaking, are the basis of their right standing before God. In Islam, you pray five times a day, you follow the pillars, and that's the basis of your right standing before God. In Buddhism or Hinduism, it's, it's your karma. That is the basis of your right standing before God. But we understand that our good deeds are not the basis of our right standing before God. And the reason is is that the Bible understands that nothing we can ever do will ever make us right before God because we fall so short of his goodness. The Bible diagnoses our condition in Romans where Paul says, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Bible recognises that even if we're genuine, we still fall short of God's goodness. We still fall short of God's standards. And that's why only in God's grace can God's goodness fully come into our lives. You know, there are people out there who so desperately want their merits. They so desperately want their good works to be the basis of their relationship with God. They so desperately want God to look at them with favour because they work hard and they study hard and they, and they try to do good. They so want God to, to bless them on the basis of the fact that they're being a good person. You know, and then when difficult times and suffering times come, they turn against God and say, God, I'm a good person. Why aren't you blessing me now? People desperately want that. Even as Christians, sometimes we want that. Sometimes we want God to look at us and pat us on the back for the good things that we do in the world. But what did Jesus say about such people? He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What's, what's Jesus saying to these people? Yeah, yeah, you may call me Lord, Lord. You may believe that I died for the sins of the world. You may believe that I rose from the dead. But you're still putting your salvation, the basis of your salvation on your own merits. You're still saying, Jesus, I did many things. I prophesied in your name. I did miracles. I, did. I gave money every time the offering basket came along. God, I attended church religiously once a week. And he says, but you never had that relationship with me. You're still appealing to your good works. Cultivating goodness means we don't appeal to our good works. We appeal to the good works of God in our lives. And ultimately, the goodest thing Jesus did for the world was to die for the world and to save the world through his resurrection. You know, if, if you have a debt with a bank, right? Supposing you have a mortgage, right? I see most of you have a mortgage, right? Okay, let's estimate that, say, your mortgage is 400000 right? You walk into the bank tomorrow and you say, yeah, I know I've got a mortgage, 400000 But you know what? Instead of giving you money to pay off the mortgage, I'm going to come every day religiously and sweep the floors for you. I'm going to work off my debt. What do you think they're going to say to you? No. No, that's not how you pay this debt. Right? The same is true when we have sinned against God, when we've fallen short of his goodness, the debt can only be paid through God's goodness, through what Jesus has done. There is no other way to, to, to pay off that debt. And I love the biblical power of the word grace. I just love how God communicates his grace to us. The first time that the Bible uses the word grace, it's in the story of Noah. It's in the story of Noah in Genesis 6, the story of Noah and the flood. God is talking about the sin and the wickedness of the world. And then he says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor there, is the word grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew chen, right? It means not just favor, it means beauty. In God's eyes, Noah was so beautiful. So, so amazing was Noah that God bestowed all this grace and this favor on him. That God, when he looked at Noah, he pulled him into, into his ark, into his asylum. And in Jesus, God has opened that asylum. He's opened that boat to all people. Where only Noah and his family were saved. In Jesus at the cross, God opened the invitation to all people to join the ark. Noah built the boat out of wood. Jesus' cross was made out of wood. Right? The cross becomes the new ark. The cross becomes the new asylum. That's where God's goodness is poured out to the world. And the reason why it's based on grace is because the invitation is there for everybody. Jesus doesn't say, do all of these good things and come to me. The invitation is based, it's open to everybody. God's grace is so beautiful. His power is so incredible that he just opens up the ark to everybody to join. He looks at the world with beauty, with favor. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it a beautiful picture of God's love? The good works in the world that we proclaim, yes, we do them in action, but we primarily do them by communicating the gospel message to people, the message of God's ultimate goodness communicated to humanity. Can I just close with this story? So 
two weeks ago, two Sundays ago, I was driving home and it was late at night and I was listening to the radio and on the radio there was an interview. The interviewer was interviewing a lady by the name of Barbara. Now, she was telling a story about somebody who had, who had, who had died on the Friday. Now, the, Friday, the death on the Friday was a big news story. I just didn't know about it, so I was two days late. But I was listening to the story, and Barbara was telling the story of her son, Troy. Troy Thornton, that name might ring a bell to some of you. So Troy was a firefighter down in Victoria, and he had a wife, and he has two children. Right? So Troy, four years ago, was diagnosed with an incurable disease. Um, the disease is known as multiple systems atrophy. It's a neurodegenerative disorder which was slowly eating away his cells and, and killing him, eventually losing the ability to walk, the ability to do basic things at, 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 in, in life. And eventually he was going to be in a nursing home. Eventually he was going to struggle to even be able to communicate. It got to a point where uh, he wasn't even able to share the same bed as his wife because his muscles were doing all sorts of things in the middle of the night. Now, the reality is this, is that Troy made a decision that he wasn't going to live anymore. He decided that he was going to get himself euthanized. So we know that there's this debate now in the world, youth, debate over euthanasia, assisted suicide, the ability to take your life if you're terminally, terminally ill. Now in Victoria, the law has changed, but it doesn't come into effect yet, where if two doctors, two GPs can, will sign off to say that, yes, this person hasn't got a hope of living beyond 12 months, uh, when the laws come into effect, they'll be able to take their own life. Now, Troy couldn't do that because he couldn't find two doctors to sign off to say that, yes, he will definitely be dead in the next 12 months. And as Barbara was telling the story of Troy, who, who packed up, went to Switzerland, went to a clinic in Basel to take, his, uh, to take his own life, she was just so emotional. And she was pleading with the government to look at why we should make euthanasia legal. Now, when that happened, I started to get really, really angry. Right? Now, I'm not an angry person by nature, but you know how sometimes when somebody does something which makes you really, really angry? I'm thinking, how, how can these people say these things? How can these people do all these things? How can they make these godless policies about allowing people to die? You know, I'm a Christian. I believe that God preserves life. You know, Jesus had the ability to take his own life before the crucifixion. The Bible tells us that people offered him poison and he spat it out. Right? Jesus could have done that. He could have ended his life quickly. How dare these people do it? And I thought God just say, wait. Jason, Wait. I want you just to stop and listen to this woman's story. This is a woman who, a few days ago, said bye to her son. She said bye to her son. Don't you have any compassion for this person? This man, Troy, said to his two teenage children goodbye at the airport in, Sydney, in Victoria. Never going to see them again. What was that moment like for him? What was that moment like for Troy when, with his wife, he departed at the gate and left his two children there? What was that moment like for him? You don't have any compassion for this person? What was the moment like for him when he got to the clinic in Switzerland and his wife said bye to him and he closed his eyes? I mean, what was that moment like? You know, Jesus could look at the world with anger, with resentment. And he would be right to do that if he wanted to. He could look at the world and say, how dare you people do all these things? How dare you be bad? How dare you kill? How dare you do all of this? But he looks at the world through goodness. Through his beautiful eyes, he looks down at the world and sees his creation and says, you know what? Yeah, they do all of those things. 
but I'm going to fix the problem. Where they were bad, I will make good. And God calls us to do the same, to join with him to do that. You know, Jesus had to say bye to his mum as well one day. The Bible talks about in the Gospels how before he dies, before he goes back to Jerusalem, he goes back to Galilee. What do you think he was doing? He had to say, Mum, you know, the time is now, I'm going. You know, what was the conversation like with, 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 with James, his brother, or Jude? Guys, I'm going. His sisters, he says, I'm going. Right? Jesus had to do the same thing. And we have to recognize that and appreciate in the world. We can't always look for the bad in people. We can't always look at the bad in our family, in our friends. Oh, my, my, my sister or my brother always treats me so badly. Oh, my boss is a terrible person. Oh, this, all oh, that. We have to start looking at the beauty in people through the way Jesus did. That is ultimately what it means to cultivate goodness. To see that God could have done the same thing. He could have looked down upon you and I with hatred, with anger. But no. The first line of the Bible is not, in the beginning God created heaven and hell. John doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he sent, for God so hated the world that he sent Jesus to send people to hell. We want to be followers of Jesus. We need to start by being good to other people and recognize that it's not based on how good we are that God loves us. He looks down upon us just like he looked down upon Noah and said, you know what? You're bad, but I'm going to make you good. I'm going to take you into the boat and I'm going to keep you safe. That's what the cross communicates to the world. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, Lord. And we just pray, Father, that, that we will practice goodness to the world, Lord, that we won't look to other people with anger and resentment, but we will recognize, Father, that you have loved us and it's out of your love and your grace for us that you have done so much good for us, Lord. We pray for any person in this, in this room, Lord, who might be struggling, Lord, that they might, might find their sanctuary in you alone, Lord. And I pray especially for any person in this audience, Lord, who today has come here, Maybe this is the first time they've heard anything about you, Jesus. Maybe they've been far off from you, Lord. But I pray in this moment that they will open their hearts to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.